Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Bryson Ream, CEO and founder of Ream Richardson Construction. Bryson and I first met because he was the general contracting firm in LA doing the One West Hollywood for us and Starwood. And we fast became friends because I was really inspired by the team that he put together, the projects he was doing, how he works. And it just totally comes through in this conversation that I know you love. We discussed how he implemented Entrepreneur's operating system throughout his business, which enabled him to scale and grow the business, how he started in the business, how he scaled too quickly and then pulled back and had to start over from scratch, essentially with a core team. We also talked about how he's getting into development and he has gotten into development and how he's growing that business, primarily focusing on warehouse to office conversions. And lastly, we talk about a new vertical where he's spending a lot of time and that is in the owner's rep world of large, large multi-hundred million dollar projects, primarily for institutions, museums, culture institutions. Please enjoy my conversation today with Bryson Reeb. I thought a really interesting place to start the conversation today would be around just the construction world and environment. Because when I first started getting involved in my business and building up Dove Hill, it was right around 2011. And construction costs were just kind of part of doing business. You wanted to negotiate the best price. You were kind of bidding around to different contractors. And now, in my experience, the process, the pricing, how people think about construction is completely different. And it's really evolved over 10 years, but you've been in the business longer than that. So I'm curious to see, like, maybe we can start with, like, as you've been coming up in construction, how things have changed and kind of where we are today and what the landscape looks like today. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. So, you know, I started back in 2003, mainly in the, the tenant improvement space. So much different from where we are now in terms of doing, uh, you know, larger ground up projects and institutional projects and things like that. But it's an interesting question, especially coming out of the pandemic and all the madness that we just encountered, because that was the question all through the pandemic of, of what is going on with construction pricing, with material pricing. And everyone kept coming back with what is going to happen in the next year. And in the middle of that, the answer was, we have no idea. We're, we're rolling with this month to month and we're trying to adjust over time to see what we're doing. 
And now we've finally come to this spot where I feel like when people ask what's happening, all we can really say is that we feel like pricing overall has stabilized. So we're not going to see these massive fluctuations like we have over the past four to five years. I mean, the, the cost increase over the past five years have been, as you know, astronomical. So if you're underwriting a project and you're three years out, people were just getting absolutely killed from their original underwriting of performas. And then seeing three years later when they started building, I'm paying 20% more now than I anticipated paying on, on this deal. So we're hoping that that has essentially leveled out. And now we're at a place where although costs are still very high, at least we can say they are what they are at this point. And now they're leveled off and um, you can comfortably go into a project and not expect to see some crazy 30% uh, cost increase over the next 24 months or something like that. So a little bit better uh, development environment. Throughout your career, what else has changed in construction and maybe what's most recently accelerated and pivoted very quickly? Um, you know, in LA specifically, you know, we've seen technology come in and play a huge role in advancement of construction. For a long time, the industry in general was just stuck, right? It, it was one of those industries that you didn't see a lot of advancement on all levels, right? You know, you get a peek behind the curtain of some of these billion dollar firms even, and you're like, oh, what are you using for your management system? What are you using for your estimating system? And a lot of times it's always oh, use Excel. And you're like, wait, you're a billion dollar firm and you're, you're using Excel scattered throughout the company. So you saw that for a long time. And then you started to see some tech companies jump into the game. And we all know the majority of them. Uh, one that we use is Procore, which is amazing. So you saw groups like that come in and say, hey, we need to fix this system and give people a better platform to build. So that was, I think, the biggest change that I've seen in the past 10 years is once the tech companies got involved and started creating these platforms that were more collaborative overall, that really made the build process better as long as you could adopt them and implement them effectively. We've seen a lot of people try to adopt them and the company do get full buy-in and things like that. And in that scenario, it almost makes it worse because now you're operating two or three different systems and that kind of hurts the overall business. But if you can buy into one of those systems and use them effectively, uh, it, it helps. And then outside of that, technology in general, right? You're seeing uh, uh, you know layout robots on the large sites now that are doing all the... Uh, automated layouts and things like that. So we're seeing that happen. And then with uh, what's happening with artificial intelligence overall, you know, I was um, doing a deep dive on that the other day in the estimating space. How is artificial intelligence going to affect estimating, especially on ground up projects, right? Are we going to be able to insert a set of plans and have AI spit out all of our numbers accurately in the next, you know, two to five years? All things lead to yes, which is going to be pretty amazing overall. And you're going to see architecture groups and people start to pivot to understand how do you work with AI? How do you create a set of plans that you can use to have be estimated? Um, I was having a great conversation with an architect on that where they said, you know, estimators may not even be needed because we AI can bring that in-house to the architecture side to where they create the plans and they have AI to say, no, no, no you don't need to ask anyone else. We know what the pricing is. Here's the pricing for your project all broken down. So interesting stuff like that's going to be happening in the next couple of years, I think. I was literally having this conversation with myself the other day where we were doing a construction project right now and our partner kind of took the lead on the construction side before we got into the deal. 
and they had their architectural plans checked by some other, like it's almost like a quality control company. I think it was called like Ready Plan or something. And they checked for a lot of code compliance stuff. And I was like, wow, that's amazing where you can have a third party quality control things to avoid, you know, errors or mistakes from the architect or potential change order risk, whatever it is. And I'm like, God, with AI now, like literally you could just put this thing in the computer. Not only could you quality control it, but you could probably also basically say code check it as well and reduce the amount of nonsense that goes back and forth between you and the city. Like, you know, I would think the AI could just have a conversation yeah. with itself. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, is is AI going to replace plan checkers overall, right? Like, do you need plan checkers if you can create a system where AI can do all the plan checking for you? So there's questions like that that are coming up. And you're always going to need the human element, but it's just one of those scenarios where it's really going to be the human element managing the AI process to make sure that it's, <laughs> it's that good at the end of the day. One of the things we had some experience building in California, one of the things I thought was interesting is... In California, they seem to be very advanced in areas where labor costs force them to be advanced. Like one thing I'm thinking about is they were building like plumbing manifolds offsite and then delivering them to site so the guys don't have to work on them. But here in Florida, like none of that happens. In your conversations with other construction leaders around the country, what are some of the things that you guys are talking about to just make the business more efficient and your P&L better, your margins fatter? Like, wh what are these topics that you're chatting about? Yeah, I mean, I think top of mind is, especially in, in California right now, well, across, across the U.S., is this modular discussion of how can we build effectively with modular? So we're, we're working on several projects in that space right now. Um, and also modular also helps with what you just mentioned, which we're building it offsite. So how can we get around some of these labor issues and things like that if we're doing the majority of the builds offsite? But you got to love California because they've already kind of keyed in on that. And there's a certain percentage now where you're not allowed to do that because they know what you're doing. So now they're even trying to stop that from happening because they're saying, we see what you've done here and we're not going to allow that either. So... California is a tough place to develop. But yeah, that's that's one where, you know, it's an interesting space. But what we've seen to date is, as everyone knows, you know, it, it will save you time, uh, but it is yet to save people money. And planned improperly will, will lose you money at the end of the day. Because, you know, it's a obviously in any new industry like that, if you don't know how to set it up for success, it can kind of backfire on you. So we're doing a couple of deep dives on that with some really great developers out here. We actually have a team on a $300 million ground up that we're working on with uh, Stack Modular out of Vancouver. And the, the kind of process there, which is really enjoyable overall, is we're really just trying to figure out the model of what works. And we're going to spend as much time as we can to figure that model out before we move forward. And what will happen is, yes, we have 300 units on the table. But what we're really saying is, how can we build 5,000 units is the end game for that one. And we think we can do it, but it's just one of those things where people rush through these programs. So we're really trying to uh, step back and say, hey, let's not rush through this. Let's be a lot more methodical. Let's get all the players involved. And that's kind of uh, the secret sauce, I'll say, is a lot of people miss that of being collaborative in our industry. And if you're lucky enough to have a team that understands that, the money understands that, and you can bring a group of people together. You know, again, it takes a little bit longer up front, a little bit more time up front. But if you can unlock that and now you're rolling it out over 5,000 units, 
it's worth it at the end of the day. So we're doing a lot of that right now. As you've been kind of surgical diving into this, what have you learned that developers or owners need to think about when considering modular and how to engage in that process? You know, that that to me, it's modular, but it's all these projects right now is it goes back to this idea of being collaborative with the teams that you're bringing on board. So we spend a lot of time really working with owners to kind of educate them on the overall process. You know, construction development at the end of the day is, is a fairly simple science, but people miss a lot of the key aspects, which is how do you bring the right team together for the right project? The amount of times that we've worked on projects and, you know, it's a historic adaptive reuse uh, in downtown Los Angeles. And we meet the architecture group and we say, well, you know, what do you specialize in? Well, I do single family homes in Manhattan Beach. And you're like, well, why are you here right now? You know, it's like, I, I'm sure you're a great architect, but this is not your area of expertise. And then the same thing goes with the uh, MEP engineers and the structural teams. We'll just see a lot of people thrown into a pot and people wonder why the process doesn't work out. So we really try and educate owners to say, hey, number one, you need the right teams for the right projects. So let's find the right architecture group that specializes in this space. And then let's find the right MEP teams, the right structural teams. And we'll spend a lot of time up front there. So going back to picking the architecture team, you know, we'll do a deep dive with them, make sure we have the right architect. And then we'll ask that architect, hey, who are the MEP teams that you know and you like working with? So let's let's find those old relationships and and those collaborative teams that have worked together before and make sure we put them all together on this project because you're you're 50% ahead on that project if you can put together that team successfully up front and then bringing in the general contractor to be part of the team early on is just key, right? People miss that a lot. They don't want to pay for pre-construction. There's always the question of, well, you know, how, how are we going to keep them competitive at the end of the day? For us, that all goes out the window. It's you have to, you know, you can zero in on three great teams that fit the project. You can get around the competitive side by doing a, you know, a GCs and fee breakdown early on to bring them in. There's a lot of contractual ways you can keep these teams on up and up, but having the builder involved in the process is absolutely key because something that we've always, you know, found fascinating is people will spend 18 months designing this beautiful project with the whole team involved. And then they'll turn around to the people that are actually going to build it over the next you know, 16 months and say, hey, we need a price on this in the next four weeks. And people competitively bid it. They don't try and help. They don't try and fill the gaps. They want to get the project and they figure out the problems after the project starts. So how do you avoid that is bring them on early, as early as you can and, and make them part of the team to kind of solve all those problems together. Okay, so walk me through then in the perfect project, the owner's bringing you on basically right after conceptual design, like kind of right when this, let's just take a ground up construction project in your CM role. We'll get into like what you do and all the different stuff that you're doing, but one of your business is construction management. So in the perfect project, when are you getting brought in and kind of what are you doing and what does that role look like? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's different for each client. So again, I'll go back to saying we want to be involved as early as possible. So we've been brought in, you know, from SDs to say, Hey, we want you at the table from this point forward, just to look for any red flags, look for anything that doesn't make sense, our, our logistics a mess. Like we want you at the table. And obviously that's going to be a very limited engagement. You're not going to be there as, as much as, you know, you would in, in full pre-con. 
But, you know, in a perfect world, we're working on a deal right now and it's an office to resi conversion, which is kind of all the buzz, but amazing team. And they brought us in again, day one, like they're, they're just getting through schematics. And it was such a great experience to work with this owner because you could tell they'd been there before, they'd done it. They truly understand the value of having that build team involved early on. And it was exactly everything that we just said. They said, hey, we just want you at the table for the next four months. So we want you there. We want you working with the team, pointing out any red flags, helping us design this correctly. And then we're going to roll right into a pre-com process after that to do the deep dive, to really start working with the teams, bringing in all the subcontractors, getting all the right feedback. So to us, that's a, that's a perfect scenario from a builder standpoint, right? Because that just allows us to fix all those issues that we see upstream where normally we don't have the opportunity to raise our hand and say, hey, this is going to be a problem. So let's fix it now instead of fixing it when we're you know, a quarter of the way through the project and uh, it causes delays and, and things like that. Office to Resi is all the rage. Like, I want to get into what you do, how you came up in the business, the whole story, but I got to ask this right now. So I think a lot of people are familiar with the challenges to in office to resi conversions and everyone's aware of the potential opportunity maybe you can walk us through what you've seen as the solutions and how to actually convert these office buildings to residential projects and maybe what things don't work and what are quick no's from you know an existing building standpoint yeah well i'd say most things don't work so <laughs> that's that's our initial takeaway at this point. You know, in our space on the build side, we kind of made a name for ourselves in the historic adaptive reuse space, especially in downtown LA, all the beautiful old 1920s buildings. So that immediately people started coming to us and saying, hey, we want to do these office to resi conversions. It's a big buzz. And we're kind of like, well, yeah, we've been doing that for, <laughs> for 15 years now. But where we sit right now in the market is it doesn't make any financial sense to do those conversions. It's very expensive. Uh, people don't understand in those old buildings, you know, they say, oh, we're going to come in and we're going to uh, do some tweaks, do an interior tent improvement and turn this into resi. You can't do that. You're essentially having to gut these buildings back to the core and start fresh. And then you're coming in with everything new. So all new structural, all new life safety systems, you need power upgrades every time. So by the time you get through all of that and you get to your cost per square foot, the majority of those deals don't pencil. So people are passing on those. And the question is, well, when are the building costs going to get down to where they do pencil? In a place like downtown Los Angeles, we're seeing that happen very quickly. So we expect in the next 12 months, deals to start making sense because the prices of these high rises and things are dropping. Now, on the flip side, if you get out of the historical style of buildings, if you get into like the 1990s office buildings, that's a completely different animal. Now, the big question there is, do the floor plates make sense to convert, right? So if you have this massive floor plate with this huge center area, that's it's really hard to figure out what to do with those cores. But if you don't, like the one we're working on now, usually your elevator systems are great. Your structural is up to date, so you're not doing a major structural renovation. All your fire life safety systems are there, your sprinkler systems are there. So essentially what you end up with is usually a large interior tenant improvement. And then if there's some facade elements or rooftop elements, you'll throw those in as well. Those deals make a lot of sense. But what's the trick there is actually finding the buildings where the floor plates make sense to convert. 
if you can find those, those are great deals. But the trick is actually finding them to, to convert them. Is cutting out a hole, like making a donut of these buildings, something that you've seen to be viable? Or is that really just a architecture student's yeah. class project? No, I, it works. But again, it's, then you come right back to the cost question. Like, yeah, that would be amazing. There's a big one in, in downtown LA. It's a million square feet and just massive floor plates. And there was all sorts of really interesting uh, conversations. One was, let's actually put the main drive up the center of the building and you would actually park at your unit. So that's how much space there was in the middle of the building. So you put all your units on the exterior of the building. You have your driveway go right up the middle of the building and you pull onto the floor and you'd actually park like at your front door. And then you would walk into your unit. And it was actually a pretty fascinating concept. I loved it. I'm like, oh, this would be a slam dunk. But then you get into the cost side of that. And then the cost side kind of kills it again. So there's a lot. There's there's no shortage of amazing ideas. But what really hurts it is it, it costs too much. All right. So let's let's talk about like why you know all this stuff, your whole background, and what drove you into the construction space from the start. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of got thrown into it. So I think I, I mentioned that, you know, I, I joined the Army at a young age. So right out of high school, I, I joined the Army. I went to Kentucky. And then out of the Army, I got went to the Reserves, got activated for, for 9-11, uh, went through that whole experience. And when I came out of that, I actually moved to L.A. My father was a residential tenant movement contractor back then. So I started working with him because he was actually retired at the time to come out of retirement to do a adaptive reuse project in downtown LA with an old client of his that had come out and said, Hey, we have this opportunity. And he said, yeah, I can knock that out. My father's one of the guys like, I can do whatever. It doesn't matter. Even though coming from like a residential background. So the exact issue that I just mentioned, like people get- By the way, that's how all commercial real estate guys got started by saying they could do it and coming from a residential background. Yeah, exactly. So we both went down there and it was the Douglas Building Lofts in downtown LA. And it was done by a developer named Goodwin Ga. It was actually YPR. And it was one of the first adaptive reuse uh, projects done in downtown LA right after the ordinance had been passed. So no one knew what they were doing. No one even knew how to really inspect the deals. Like it was new for the inspectors. It was new for the plan checkers. So the whole process was just kind of a mess overall. So we went through it. Luckily, we got through it. Goodwin was an amazing client. You know, he saw the, he had a vision for downtown and what was happening. So he was really behind it and we kind of eked our way through that. Halfway through it, it was a very difficult process overall with Rockefeller Partners, Architects, another great group that's been down there forever. And probably right before the end of that project, my father was like, I'm out, you know, came back, I'm done with this one. Uh, And I created a relationship with Goodwin at that point. He said, hey, we're going to do three, four more of these right down the street. So let's let's partner up and let's do this together. So that was my big opportunity to start something because I had somebody like Goodwin backing me saying, hey, let's create a company here. Let's build these projects and let's go. So essentially, he said, don't worry about cost. Don't worry about anything. I got this. Let's, let's go. So we went from two people to 60 people within like a 12-month time frame doing all of Goodwin's work in LA, all the way from the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel to the Rowan Building Lofts to the El Dorado Lofts. And obviously for me, it was like, you know, drinking from a fire hose. I was just hiring people as fast as I could, throwing people at projects. It was just absolutely chaotic. 
at that point, I think two years in, my business partner, uh, Evan Richardson, had come on. So I had a partner to kind of help build the business. And we were running fast all the way up until 2008, right when the, all the fun happened with the, you know, the crash. And then, you know, everything kind of stopped. At that point, we had a lot more clients outside of Goodwin and, you know, we had to kind of step back and reassess. So that's what we did. And we went, we went down quickly, just like most people. I think we had 70 people. We went down to like 14 within a couple months, just because there's no more money. No more, nobody's funding these projects anymore. And we look back and we always say that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to us because it allowed us to kind of reset and build an infrastructure for a real company, as opposed to just this madness that we've been encountering for years before that. So we did that and we focused and we built up a great general contracting business in Los Angeles, have a lot of amazing people, process, procedure. So that's been kind of our core business. But through that, uh, and actually through YPO and, and some mentors, we got into our own real estate development as well. So we started Stately LA, which is our real estate development arm, started doing smaller warehouse conversions in and around the LA area back 2009, 2010, and continue to do that and get into larger projects. And that's on our development side. And through all of that, through building and then doing our own development, you know, we kept running into this issue of seeing projects for our clients on the build side just kind of struggle overall. And when we were building, our projects were very streamlined. And clients that we knew started coming back to us and saying, hey, can you kind of construction manage this for us as well? Can you put the team together? Because we trust you guys. We just want to work with you. So we ended up getting into this kind of hybrid CM at risk role where we're construction managing and doing the build. So we always knew that we wanted to transition and start a owner's rep construction management firm as well. And I was just waiting to kind of find the right person to help kick that off. And I was lucky enough about two years ago to meet that person. And that's when we kicked off uh, the Cooperative LA, which is our new owner's rep construction management firm. And that has been going very well. That's probably where I spend the majority of my time now. And it's very exciting being on that side because having the ability to set up projects for success and bring all of our experience to the table has just been an absolute joy. You know, we're, we're like, we're going to fix this and we're going to do this right for you. And it's been very successful. Um, and it, we're on a very quick upward trajectory with that firm now working on some very, very iconic kind of uh, notable projects that I think I mentioned last time I signed an NDA on one that I can't mention, but a couple more coming down the pipe that you'll hear about soon. So we're excited about that. I'm excited. So going back to the Goodwin Gaw days when this thing was like first getting thrown together, what what was the deal? Like he invested in the company. Were you kind of an arm of their platform? How did that work? No, Goodwin's a smart guy. You know, I always look back at that and kind of laugh of like, oh man, he's he was smart with what he did there. So no, he said, let's form a new company and I'm going to be an owner of that company. So he was an owner of the contracting business. And then we built all of his projects for him. And so that kind of the, the funny thing there is, you know, after 2008, 2009, you know, we'd, we'd expanded. We had a ton of amazing clients in the LA area. Uh, Goodwin had kind of backed away from LA. He was developing all over the US, overseas and things like that. Goodwin was here a couple months ago in our office. So he's still a friend, mentor. But we had this moment of like, wait, why are you still involved in our company? <laughs> and so I, I did a, a buyout of Goodwin, which was kind of hilarious because it's Goodwin. But we went through that whole process and bought Goodwin out, I think in 2009, 2010. 
and kind of kept doing our own thing. But yeah, he was amazing for our, our initial growth and again, mentorship and things like that. He's the one that actually mentioned YPO to me and why I got involved with YPO and things like that. What were some of the challenges? Because a lot of people shy away from GCing their own projects. What were some of the challenges that you were seeing in the early days where you were both involved with the owner and the GC? Yeah, that that was one where, I mean, when you run into issues, you know, your profitability kind of goes out the window because the owner is saying, hey, you know, we're we're basically part of this company here. So uh, if we're having any issues or anything like that, it, it kind of goes away to the sense that we're going to, you're essentially building a cost when you're involved with the owner like that. So that was always a struggle to where bills were paid, people had were working for a great firm and things like that, but it wasn't anything sustainable and there wasn't a lot of profit in, in, a, in a model like that because really the, the owner developer is trying to make their money on the development. They're not trying to make their money on the build side. So you find yourself in this interesting position where you're like, well, we want to make money on the build side as well. And owner developer is like, well, that, no, no, I'm making my money over here. So that's going to be your struggle of, of building with the group there. So unless you can figure things out up front, kind of set the metrics. Is there a way to have it so that you think it works or is it best in many instances to keep that separate from what you've seen? I definitely think there is a way to make it work. I, we're having this discussion the other day where some of the largest GCs in the United States, you don't know who they are because they are in this month. They're not on the NR. They don't need to market because they're doing so much work in that type of model. They just kind of do that. So I think there is a way uh, to do it successfully. And I do think it can be extremely beneficial. Uh, we've actually had conversations recently with one of our oldest clients doing a ton of work in the LA area exactly for this reason. They're, they've been struggling for years, very successful, but every project is a struggle for them. And they're working with six or seven different GC groups in the LA area. So we're having this discussion right now of what would it look like if we partnered up with you and we took on all of your work and kind of went through this whole process. And, you know, that, that at the end of the day, if you set it up properly, makes a ton of sense because what it does for the general contractor is it takes so many elements off the table that allows them to focus on building well. And what I mean by that is no longer do you have to worry about marketing. No longer do you have to worry about your pipeline and your backlog. So every decision you're making now, you can make from the standpoint of how do I find the best people and build the best projects? I know I have the backlog of the team, so I know I have the revenue coming in to be able to do that. If you don't have that and you're just running a standard business and you know, you're small to mid-size, you're always looking out the next 24 months saying, great, I have 100 million in revenue right now. I need to have 110 million in the next 24 months. And if you don't have that locked and guaranteed, every decision is guided by that. You know, it's like, hey, I want to bring on this top tier senior PM, but they're expensive and there's benefits. Now I have to have that carry. If you have that partnership, that goes out the window. And now all you're doing is bringing on the best people, setting up the best process, the best procedure and building as best you can. So that's the benefit of it is you have a GC that is solely focused on, on just your projects. And they have that luxury of knowing that they can make the right decisions without all those other business things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis coming into the framework of oh, my marketing, my sales, my, my HR, all these different things kind of get sidelined and where you can just focus on what matters in the build space. I want to talk about like how 
prevalent today GC bidding is? Because I've gotten to the phase in my life where I've tried in my business, where I've tried to like develop relationships with certain GCs in certain markets. And the assumption is that we're going to go to them assuming the project can basically come in for the budget or close to it and that they're going to go out and bid it out and get the best price. And there's no point to go to three different GCs who are probably going to end up going to the same three or four different subs in the market anyways. Curious like how you've seen that evolve and what that looks like today. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very similar to what you, what you just said. You know, we see a lot of people that the savvy developers are doing exactly what you just said, right? They understand that if I go to these three GCs, and again, you vet the GCs properly, right? If you're working with good teams at that level. So it's like in LA, if, if you're talking about, if I'm going to go to Morley or Swinderton or Bernard's, those are all amazing firms. I don't need to worry that I'm going to get gouged or taken advantage of by any one of those firms. They're all good, great firms. So why are you going to go to all three, right? You know, you're going to get something within 10 to 20% from all three of those firms. So instead, go to one and do exactly what you said of you guys are going to go to the same sub base that, you, that these other teams are going to go to. So how do you go and create that relationship and say, hey, I'm more interested in an honest, open relationship with your team to help us find the best cost here. So we're going to work with you guys and we're going to kind of almost guarantee these projects for you. But in return, we're going to want XYZ. So that's where I think there is some good conversations to be had with quality GCs of, you know, what is that? What do you want back from them to kind of guarantee that pipeline? And that's where you get into, well, you know, we want a little bit more transparency. You know, we want to see all the, the subcontractor bid breakdowns. We want to see all the bid analysis. We want to truly know that we're getting the best price on this. But more than that, we want a partner that's looking out for us that's going to actually help us build better and find ways to save money. In a competitive bid scenario, that never exists, right? In a competitive bid scenario, it's, hey, I got to put a competitive bid together, which means I need to get this job. So I know there's all these things over here that are missing on this project, but I got to ignore that for now so I can get the project and then we'll inform them after we get the project that this is where they sit. You know, and that's what we're always telling clients is, you know, do you want, do you want the, the low number or do you want the accurate number, right? Because we can give you the low number that's on your plans or we can give you the accurate number, which fills all the gaps that your plans are missing. So that, that's a, a constant discussion that we're having. What are the gaps that you often see on plans? Because inevitably that always happens when you're descoping things all this stuff comes up. What are the common ones that you're seeing? You know, it's really when you get into the details and it's it's how you set up the team. So, you know, for example, if you have an architect of record teamed up with a design architect, that's an area where you really need to go heavy on the design coordination because a lot of that gets missed. And then you get into the classic scenario of like, oh, well, it's not on the plans here. It's like, well, it is on the plans over here, right? And you're like, well, they weren't coordinated. It's not my problem. So you run into that a lot. So really what it comes down to is the coordination overall. And, and then also understanding what you're putting out. So a lot of people will say, you know, hey, here's a set of uh, 50% CDs or construction drawings. We get those drawings and we're like, these things are 20% at best because no one has a baseline for what that means anymore, right? It's 100% SDs, it's 50% CDs, it's 75% CDs. What does that mean? 
everyone's just throwing out these things with no actual kind of breakdown of what does it mean to get to 75% CDs? What does it mean to get to 100% construction drawings? So what we do, putting on my uh, owner's rep construction management hat, is we have a tool where we actually have a full breakdown for every phase. So when we work with the architecture and design team, we say, do not submit 50% CDs unless you go through this checklist and every item on this checklist is checked off. That makes it very easy for an owner to understand. And owners love that because they run in this, they don't know. They're not architects. They're not contractors. If, if their architect says it's 50% CDs, they say, thanks, this is 50% CDs. And we've had to, on the build side, kind of educate owners on that, where they say, hey, we really want to get a rough order of magnitude, get our budget in check. We have 50% CD drawings. We'll get those drawings and we'll say, hey, these are not 50% CD drawings. I mean, we had one where there wasn't even a spec book involved. And they said, oh, just make assumptions for a, for a $30 million job. You know, I'm trying to educate the client. Be like, so let me break it down. If I get a uh, waterworks angle stop, that's $75 an angle stop. Well, if I get a Kohler one, that's $15. Now let's extrapolate that over the whole building. It's like just that one little item. Look how that affects your budget. So you can't just ignore it and say make assumptions or things like that. So again, it's just kind of educating people on how to tee up the packages properly before you go out and start getting all your pricing and things like that. Okay, so on this owner's rep side of things where you're advising an owner, like putting that hat on, when are you pricing or when are you telling your GC to price things with subs versus having the GC do their kind of own internal estimating? Because in our projects, we've gotten surprised in times when they go out to the sub or the evolved plan goes out to the sub for the second or third time. When are you advising people to do that? You know, we usually don't want them talking to subcontractor base before 50% CDs. And mainly it's just from this idea of bidding fatigue, where we really try and avoid people going out too much to the subcontractor base, because what you'll find is the pricing will just go up, right? People will get tired of looking at it, tired of trying to find the changes, and they'll just start throwing higher and higher numbers at it. So we like to be very, very methodical about how the pricing structure works and how we go out and work with the subcontractor base. We really don't want them talking to them more than twice, right? It's right usually at 50 and then right before we're going to go to contracts, we want them to reprice and get the final numbers in. We'll see people that will start exercising the subcontractor base, you know, all, as early as SDs and just asking for budgets. And then they'll go back again and they'll send out piecemeal plans. Here's the HVAC plans. Oh, here's the plumbing plans. And they'll send out all these piecemeal. Oh, and here's, oh, the HVAC has been updated now. And that is a guaranteed way to have people just kind of check out of the project and say, hey, we'll keep going through the process, but we're not really, we're not actively trying to get you the best pricing anymore. So, and we like to kind of inform people up front of that process from the owners to the GCs to everybody to know, hey, this is how we operate from a pricing standpoint. So we don't encounter that. And also, the GCs love it, right? The GCs are the ones that are usually exercised the most in terms of pricing from day one. The amount of times that on the build side, we'll get three pages and they say, hey, how much is this going to cost? And we're like, <laughs> it's three pages, you know? So it's this question of like, well, it's this, well, that's too much, you know? And there's an internal joke where it's like, hey, that's it's $20 million. That's too much. Cool. It's 15. 
like you gave me three pages. Like, I don't know what to tell you. We're, we're making our best assumptions on this project. So the GCs will see that a lot where they just get exercised over and over and then they, they get some SDs. And then they, again, that's where I talk about the MEPs being thrown in, the structural being thrown in. There's no process of getting clean packages and milestones for pricing that you can, you can really track to make sure you're ending up where you want to be. On the build side, do you do anything differently when you're pricing internally that would be unique or that you've found to be really effective so that owners aren't surprised when you actually go out and get real pricing from subs? I mean, it's it's a timing thing as well, like especially as we've seen in the last, you know, 36 months or so of you got to this point where subcontractors were not holding their pricing, I mean, you, for 10 days. They're like, you sign in, in the next two weeks or that price is not valid anymore. So I think it's it's also making sure that you have an effective and aggressive bidding strategy to go through it, get the pricing back and present that to ownership to say, hey, this is where we sit right now. Where you, you see a lot of change is when you work with an owner, you get them a price, and then they spend the next 12 months kind of designing, retooling and things like that. And then Hey, here's the updated plans. Let's reprice. It's it's a year later. And then all of a sudden prices have gone up 20%. It's like, well, we didn't change that much in the plans. It's like, yeah, but we're 12 months down the road now. People are busy depending on what, where the market is. And so the market really dictates a lot of that as well. You know, it's we we say if people are, you know, we're hoping for a long time on the GC side, it's been a it's been a subcontractor market for so long. You know, you you would get in a position where the subs didn't think it was their project, they would rarely even look at it. You know, so you hope to get to a point where the subs are calling you and saying, hey, what's on the boards? What do we have looking? And that's when you know things are starting to shift and slow down. And we're seeing a little bit of that right now, where it's starting to come back to the GC side. You're like, all right, we should be able to get more competitive pricing moving forward because we've seen a lot of projects starts kind of slowing down and things like that. Is there a magic bullet when it comes to the type of contract you use for a specific project that you've seen to be most effective and most effective i'd define as owners happy contractors happy and the projects you know relatively built on time yeah i mean what we've seen most nowadays is like a a gmp stipulated sum is is rare unless it's kind of on a smaller project or something like that so the gmps are good i would say they're more beneficial to the owner and the developer usually on the GC side, the fees are low. You're really locked in, as you know, 100% transparency, all backup provided. So once you're locked into that, you're locked into that, right? And you're going to make your fee, uh, you're going to make whatever your markups are, and that's really all you're making on that project. And stipulated some, there's a little bit more leeway on, on things like that. So I would say GMP is probably the the most fair, as long as it's fair on the GC side in terms of the fees and things like that. In our industry, the fees have been getting ground down so far to where, you know, we're, you're talking two and a half percent fees on some of these builds. And that becomes a very difficult place to live because anything goes south on those projects, you don't have a lot of wiggle room. And we compete against a lot of the larger GCs. And we're always a little bit baffled that sometimes people come back and say, hey, your fees higher or your general conditions are higher. We're like, that's impossible. There's no way that our fees are our GCs are higher than them. And what we're seeing is there's a lot of, uh, they self-perform a lot of the bigger teams. So what they'll do is they'll make up their their margin on all their self-perform work, right? So they're 
self-performing concrete or they're self-performing framing or something like that. So they can keep the initial GCs and fees really low, knowing that they'll make up a lot of that margin on the self-perform work there. So then it becomes difficult to compete against those teams that are doing the self-perform work. So for a GC builder of your size, what are good healthy margins on like the business P&L side? So if you're making two or 3% on a job, like what does that flow down to in the actual business level? Well, so that's that's the actual fee portion of it. So, you know, we we're just talking about it this morning. We had a, a financial meeting and, you know, <laughs> it's funny talking about this because whenever I talk to people, they're like, why are you in this business? It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, we're, we're like, well, you got to do volume and I mean, yeah. A couple of my good friends are in the business and they've got three or four planes. You've yes. just got to do a lot of volume, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that's the name of the game. Yeah. So you're down to you know, one and a half to 2% at the end of the day. And then it really comes down to volume. So how much volume can you do? Obviously, if you're doing tenant improvement work or anything like that, your margins are going to jump way up, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent But if you're doing the 20, 30, $50 million projects, the, the margins are very slim. So it becomes a volume game at the end of the day. It's not a, it's not a great space to live in unless you can really make that jump to being a, a Swinderton or a Bernard or something and operating at that level of you know five hundred million or more. Operating in that space on a smaller level is very very difficult. So you either kind of want to stay a smaller type firm doing you know maybe fifty to one hundred million annually, or you really want to jump to that five hundred million or more. What we found is that middle ground is a tough space to operate in. I want to go now maybe back to the time when it was like the great financial crisis. You went from 70 people to 15 people. What did you learn in terms of growing so rapidly because you just need to throw bodies at a problem versus taking some time to like think about what the business actually wanted to be? Yeah, gosh, so much. So that's why I said it was the best thing that ever happened to us because it was a great learning experience and kind of a we a little bit of a shell shock scenario where we said we we never want to experience that again, right? Just horrible having to lay people off and go through that so quickly. So one of our big takeaways was you know don't take on more work than you can handle just for the sake of taking on work. So we were really focused on. We're only going to we're only going to take on and manage the work that we know we have the capabilities of managing, and then we're going to grow organically as opposed to forcing growth. And forcing growth means you're just taking what you can, and again, you, you're in this scenario just throwing people at projects. So that was one big takeaway for us back then. The next was people, because when we did have to reduce staff that quickly, we ended up in this unfortunate scenario of like, well, who stays and who goes. Right. And then we had this moment of really understanding, well, these are our key players and there's a reason that we're keeping them on board. And then when we were left with those people, things actually got a lot better because then when we started back up and things started to move again, we were kind of left with the cream of the crop of this great group of people that we knew could excel. And uh, they're almost self-managed and things like that. So another big takeaway was you have the right people and you can find the right people that makes all the difference, right? I mean, you could do a whole podcast on people within businesses. So that was a huge takeaway for us that we really need to be focusing on finding the best of the best to be able to excel. 
not just from a, a client facing standpoint, but internally as well, right? The, the, if you can find those type of self-motivated, self-managed people, it makes your job overall that much easier as well. So you're not micromanaging everybody all the time. And then also what came of it was, you know, we were really looking for a streamlined operating system. And I think I mentioned this before that we operate under the EOS system or the entrepreneurial operating system. And that was a, a big game changer for us, right? Of just this amazing, very straightforward business operating system that really gave us a framework uh, for how to succeed and to kind of hold ourselves accountable and move the business forward step by step in a very clear, easy to understand fashion. So when we started operating under that model, that that was a big change for us as well. Yeah. Okay. So how did you convince the 15 or so people to buy into EOS? And then maybe you can also talk to us about what entrepreneur operating system is and how you've rolled it out in your business. Yeah. You know, the buy-in part is funny because that's a big part of what EOS is, is creating your core focus, creating your vision for a company, creating something that everybody can get behind. So before that, we didn't have that. We had what we call pay to play core values, right? Core values were honesty, you know, uh, you know, things like that. And there was no vision. It's like, we're a construction company, we're building what we're building, and that's it. So people didn't really have to buy into anything. They were there just because it was a job. It was great. We're doing good work. You know, Bryson and Evan are nice people to work with. And that was it. So once we found EOS, and we found this model of, hey, you need to create a framework and a vision for your company, that these people can get behind. And you need to check in with them on a regular basis and keep pushing that idea and that vision so they get excited about it and they get behind it and they know why they're coming to work on a day-by-day basis. So EOS, and because that kind of all dovetails together, you know, it, it gives you this platform of setting up your business and creating a framework for just continued success overall. So, you know, you have a breakdown there where it's, they sit you down early on and there's there's third-party implementers you can bring in. It's great because they, they really have created this model of, you know, they come in, they'll, they'll work with you and your executive team. They'll help you flush out that vision over a two-day time frame. And then they give you a model of quarterly check-ins overall that you can do. And there's software behind it, things like that now. But setting up your core focus, you know, what are you guys good at at the end of the day? So you're not just chasing everything that comes up, right? It's not, hey, let's do 10 improvements. Let's do restaurants. Let's do high rises. Let's do industrial warehouses. And everyone's all over the map just building. So it's like, no, let's focus on historic adaptive reuse. We've made a name for ourselves. We're good at that. People know us for that. So let's let's make that our core focus. It helps you set up real core values as opposed to the pay-to-play core values. So you spend a lot of time saying, what are we actually doing here? What's important to us? And it gets into kind of the, the details of, of why you as owners are passionate about why you're, what you're doing and what you're trying to do for other people. And it pulls out of you kind of values that you're passionate about that you could pass down to the team that they can get behind. And then you, you kind of create a baseline with your core values of how you're looking at everything else, like how you're looking at employees, how you're looking at clients. Is there some cohesion between your values and all the people that you're working with? Because you want there to be, right? So you, you want to look at your core values when you're looking at a new client and saying, do we share similar values because we want to work with good people at the end of the day? And then it lets you put together this 10-year picture, where are we going to be in 10 years, right? What's our marketing program? How are we going to put a good marketing plan to get to that 10-year picture? 
what's our three-year plan, right? So we're, what, what's our company going to look like in three, three years? All the way down to what's the one-year plan? What are we doing this quarter? What are we doing this week? And it really breaks it down in this simple fashion. And then you have your weekly L10 meetings. And it just gives everybody a very simple, transparent way to operate. And it really takes emotion out of the, the program. We've all sat in meetings and, and things like that. And there's all these you know, undertones and things aren't getting done and things like that. It, it clears that out completely, really shines light on the people that are performing and shines light on the people that aren't performing. And just, again, takes emotion out of it. It's black and white because of the, the framework that they've created. And that's a big game changer because meetings before we implemented this were what a lot of people experience of just people going around, talking about a lot of amazing things, creating action items. You come back and some of them are done. Some of them aren't. Everyone talks about why they weren't. And you go around in circles for two hours and you leave the meeting being like, that was just a waste of time at the end of the day. So there was a lot of that. And again, this process clears that up very quickly. It's a managed meeting. You have It's literally timed. Every section is timed and you don't go past the time. You move things down if you can't get through it. And it just makes it so it's black and white. It's effective. And you can kind of manage it. It really expands your bandwidth at the end of the day. What are some of the core principles of those L10 meetings? And then also, like, how have you set them up so that you can now have basically three businesses and what are you meeting about and what are you looking to gain from these meetings? Yeah. So the, the level 10 meetings, they're 90 minutes and you go in and they're very structured. So you go in and there's a, a segue program. Segway is just, Hey, let's get everyone in the mindset of, of having a real meeting here. So everyone go around five minutes, you know, what are your, uh, give us some good news. And it's always, you want to start on a positive note can be personal, can be business, can be whatever you want, but it's got to be something positive that people go around. And that's a great way to start a meeting because you hear about somebody's kid won their, you know, little league tournament or something like that. So it gives it, it kind of takes everyone out of the day-to-day grind, gives them a second to reset and then get into the mode of we're here to be part of this meeting and we're here to do something effective right now. So it starts there you go through that whole process. And then the next item you roll into you run into your kind of to-do list. So from your last meeting, everyone was assigned very specific to-dos. So what I love about this process, again, removing all of the kind of who did what, then people talking about why they didn't get things done. You had a to-do, it's done or not done. There is no discussion around it. So everyone goes through their to-dos in front of everybody else. Done, 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 not done, not done, not done. You won't discuss them at all unless somebody has a to-do that's not done for two weeks in a row. At that point, it drops to what's called the issues list. And then it becomes an issue where you spend more of your time. So you'll go through all of your to-dos, done, not done. And then you'll kind of work your way down. Uh, There's a headline section where is there any major news that people need to present right now? Is there any big issues that we need to throw on the table? Any announcements that we need to make sure we get out to our people anything like that? Then you get to the meat of the meeting, which is called the IDS. So that's identify, discuss, and solve. So you'll have an issues list where anything that comes up within the company, you'll put it on this list, and then you prioritize it every meeting. And what you're going to try and do is get through one to three of those in every meeting. So you get to IDS, you go to number one, throw it on the table. Somebody owns the issue usually, and they'll present to the team, this is a problem that I'm not having. You'll identify what it is, you'll discuss it, and then you'll solve it. And solve it means to-dos, right? These are the issues. 
These are the to-dos that we're assigning from this issue. Those should be done next week. So again, so simple, so clean. And then after that, you go through the uh, end of the process, you conclude, you recap everyone's to-dos, everyone moves on, on to the next meeting. So it's just this beautiful model that is backed up by a software program called 90.io that allows you to move through these meetings effectively. And again, coming from not great meetings of no structure, and again, meeting agendas and action items and all your classic meeting elements, but just no structure of moving through and being like, I don't need to talk about all this. We've all been in meetings where, oh, this didn't get done. And all of a sudden, you're 30 minutes into a conversation with everyone about why this random issue didn't get done. It's like, who cares? Like, I get it. It didn't get done. Let's talk about it next week, you know, and tell us if it didn't get done. If it didn't get done again, all right, let's have a real thoughtful conversation. But it gets away from the tangents and the randomness of meetings where you're constantly going on all these tangents, right? And because it's time and everyone needs to really stay on it, it gets away from that. And there's even a rule of, they call it tangent alert, where as soon as somebody comes up and starts going on a tangent, it's everyone's responsibility to say, hey, tangent alert, we're not, we're not, that's not why we're here. Back to the meeting, let's get through this and move on. So I love it. We've had a lot of success with it on, on all the businesses. And because it is so effective and it does expand your bandwidth, uh, it's allowed for me to put the right people in place to be able to be a part of multiple firms running multiple meetings in that sense. And because of where I operate now, they have a, something called the visionary and the integrator role. I operate in the visionary role. Integrator is the person that is kind of in the weeds, in the details, almost like an operations person. And if you can find those integrators, true integrators, and actually have a, a, a test you can take for it through the model, it's amazing. They actually call it rocket fuel when you find a, a true visionary, a true integrator together. It's really something special to where it can really kind of supercharge a business at the end of the day. Do you have an integrator? Yes. <laughs> I have a few of them. So, so you have these integrators that run the businesses mm-hmm. and they are the ones in your high level meetings kind of running through the entire L10. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The integrators actually run the meetings. And then if and then obviously depending on what your business is and what your executive team looks like, you're gonna have your CFO, your COO, uh, your core executive team in those meetings. But what's great about it, and again, it varies with every business structure, you're supposed to run EOS down through the entire company. So every division should have their own version of their L10 meetings. Every person within your firm should have their rocks each quarter, right? So it it runs everybody through this same model. And again, it's a very easy to understand system and easy for people to pick up and understand quickly. And again, accountability is amazing with it because again, you're rolling this idea of, hey, every every quarter, you're going to have these rocks and we're going to check in on them every quarter to make sure they got done or didn't get done. And that's kind of what's the biggest thing you can do this quarter to, to move the company forward or move your portion of the company forward wherever you're operating. So that's, that's a special part of it. Quarterly conversations that gets away from this idea of annual reviews where everyone has one shot once a year to kind of make their pitch and essentially ask for a raise, right? So it's quarterly conversations is, you're giving everybody within their firm much more touch points to check in with their direct supervisors and have more casual conversations. And people love it because they just have more of an opportunity to interact with their supervisors and have real conversations. And it's not just this idea of, I'm good, please give me a raise. And then it kind of allows them to get constructive criticism and give constructive criticism back as well. 
and again, in a very structured black and white manner to where emotion is kind of taken out of it. So that's been very, very successful as well, where employees really appreciate that. One of the challenges I have is I have 10-year goals, I have three-year goals, I have quarterly goals, and obviously annual goals. I revisit the quarterly goals every quarter, but I, in many instances, don't refer back to them consistently enough during the month or frequently. How do you do that? And how have you found to kind of solve that problem where all your meetings are like either tying back to the quarterly goals or your bigger goals, and then even just one-on-one with yourself, like you are thinking about those in the bigger picture? Yeah. So the software and the meetings solve for all of that, right? So when you're having these meetings and you're having all these goals, personal aside, I have a different model for how I kind of handle all my yearly personal goals. But from a business standpoint, EOS creates this model where every meeting you're looking at your yearly goals. These are our yearly goals. Are we tracking towards them? These are our quarterly goals. Are we tracking towards them? And then you'll do quarterly offsites with your team, which is a full day meeting to dig into, did we complete those rocks or goals? And if we did, great. If not, why didn't we? And how can we do better next quarter? So it's they call it pulsing, right? It, when, when I got into this idea of I'm going to be doing these meetings weekly, I was like, man, I don't, that's a lot. I don't want to do weekly meetings. And people are like, no, it's, it's pulsing. It keeps people on it. They're constantly, constantly thinking about it. And because the meetings are so efficient, they don't become as bad as these, like, you know, my, I was thinking about it when I started up, I don't want to be in these horrible meetings every week. But once they turn into this style of meeting, I'm like, oh, okay, I can be a part of this meeting because I know what I'm getting into. I know exactly how long it's going to be. I know exactly how we're going to go through the process and you're in and you're out. So it kind of changes your mentality with meetings in terms of how effective they can be. And for goals, yeah, it, it's very structured in terms of how you track and how you keep after your goals. On a personal level, you know, that's a, that's a completely different model for me. I have my own kind of tracking system overall for, you know, family, for, you know, fitness, for all that stuff that I keep separate. And I'm probably not as successful at all of those <laughs> goals at the end of the day, because I don't have a, I'm not running it through an EOS model to, you know, make sure I'm, I'm doing all the, all the right things. But you write down your personal goals. Oh yeah. Uh, actually staring at it right now. I have a kind of document that I, I create on a yearly basis. You know, it's, it's actually kind of a YPO month where it's personal business and family. And the business ones are very high level, kind of overarching over and above the day-to-day uh, yearly stuff. And then, yeah, personal goals and then family goals. And that's, you know, I try and, I try and do those on a yearly basis. And, you know, I have like a 60, 70% success rate. <laughs> I had your kind of 09 moment, I would say in 2020 around COVID, where we had some bad apples in our business and we kind of flushed them out, brought in some really key players that are now phenomenal. And we had these cultural issues and it doesn't happen overnight. And even all the time that we've put in, we have an amazing meeting cadence, but there's always room to improve. And listening to you talk about L10, I'm like, God, like we're meeting, we're doing the pulsing, but we could probably meet better. How long did you find that it took to implement this whole thing where it was like really working and not just like people are like, yeah, we're doing it because Bryson told us to do it. Yeah. You know? Well, that's where the implementers are key. 
So the beauty of it is you have this third party that can come in and really kick it off for you and and get that buy-in. I will say, I've heard a lot of stories, especially with existing long-term executive teams that have been together for a while. EOS comes in and shakes things up to the core and people will quit within a week just because there is that level of accountability and transparency and people realize very quickly, oh, this is gonna change everything. Like I can't hide anymore. I can't blame other people. And I've heard instances where people at the first meeting have gotten up and been like, I'm not doing this, right? And they'll just walk out of the meeting. So it can shake things up for, for teams, which is a good thing overall, but it really presses the idea of being open and authentic and allowing the conflict to happen. Because as we know, if, if you don't allow that, you're not going to grow. You know, they always say if, if every one of your meetings is everything's great, there's probably, there's probably a problem at the end of the day. So we've had, we've, we've seen that and we've had success with that in terms of buy-in. Again, because we didn't have a great framework, people loved it, right? They loved the model of, of, oh, we see how this can be so powerful. There's even a book they create specifically for employees called What the Heck is EOS? And it's like a short form, really easy to understand model that you give to all your employees. And and they can use that to kind of understand how you're operating. It also, in an interesting way, talking about vision and accountability, you, you do what's called a state of the company address every quarter. So the executive team sets the goals, sets their model for what they're doing for that quarter and their rocks. The state of the company and the address is after this all day offset you have. You get the whole company together and with the executive team and you say, this is what we did last quarter. And you have to present as an executive your rocks and if you completed them or not to the whole firm. So it's this whole other level of accountability of, I told you I'm a leader and I told my team and everyone here, I was going to do this. I failed or I didn't fail, right? And then by the way, this is what I'm doing next quarter. And then you present the whole vision again. You really talk about, again, 10-year picture, three-year plan. You go through everything at each one of these state of the company addresses. And again, it really gets people excited and it reminds them why they're there, reminds them of the vision, the core values, and, and things that you talk about on this quarterly basis, not just with your executive team, but you run it down to the whole company. And people really like that is what we found. I think we need to do another podcast. Like I could talk to you for an hour on just this subject because I've made all the mistakes that you're talking about. We fixed some of them, but listening to you talk, like my wheels are just like, man, I'm going to call Bryson tomorrow yeah. and like <laughs> fix this one missing link, which could be this. I yeah. do want to chat though about the development business because a lot of construction people are just sitting on the sidelines, building projects for their clients and they know how the whole machine works but they don't do it. You've decided to do it. So like, at what point did you figure out, okay, I want to do this? Like, how did that even look? And how did you know that you had the bandwidth to kind of start maybe what was at first a side hustle from your main business? Yeah, it was a YPOer that was a real estate developer. And he said exactly what you said. He said, you're, you're building for clients every single day. Why aren't you buying and building your own projects? And again, if you don't have a mentor or somebody that pushes you in a direction, it is funny how I could see, well, I would have just kept building, right? Because that's what I do. And I'm a builder and that's, that's all I focus on. 
And this person was like, you have to stop and find a way to start building your own projects. And they ran me through the whole longevity idea of, hey, it's a buy and hold scenario, build up a, your portfolio over time. And they broke it down in a very simplistic manner. So I took that to heart and immediately started looking for properties after that. And we just dipped our toe in it. We started very small. We were a successful construction company. We had cash. So our first project was all self-funded. We didn't go out for investors or anything like that. We took down a little $600,000 warehouse, not 600,000 square feet, but a little $600,000 warehouse in an up-and-coming neighborhood where we knew they had done some rezoning and things like that on a, on a great lot. And that worked out unbelievably well for us right and you know i like to say luck plays into a lot of these things we got in development 09 you know 2010 so really good timing to get into the space so we kind of lucked onto a lot of amazing deals in some very new up-and-coming neighborhoods and you know i look back and i show people some of these properties and our basis on them and it just blows their mind so that helped us and then obviously we got two or three of those going we got into some duplexes and things like that and you know what you find is you know once you build these get them least stabilized well now you have this amazing asset and then you have equity and asset and then we quickly ended up at this point of having significant amounts of equity in all of our properties and we're oh well, we can use this equity to develop more so it just kind of became this very simplistic model that became easy for us and we stayed in our lane right we kept doing our our model was really standalone warehouses with parking that we would transition into creative office. And even with the downturn and what happened with office in general in LA, our model worked well because it was smaller standalone office, which is what people want now. People don't want to be in the high rises in downtown. They want to be able to kind of control their own destiny, have a gated parking lot. It's just their firms. So all of our properties, uh, luckily enough, were, were stable through most of the pandemic and things like that, working with tenants. But that's kind of how we got into it. And then we started looking at larger projects. And I brought somebody on on the development side that had more of a background in getting into bigger projects, doing the underwriting, bringing on investors and things like that. And this is a scenario where, you know, it's funny in, in my space, living in the visionary role, as soon as it gets into kind of that type of stuff, like the detail stuff that working with the investors, I'm like, I'm out. I don't want to deal with this. Like, especially working with other people's money and things like that. I'm like, that's your business now. You can take that and you can run with it. And they love doing it, right? It's, it's a passion of theirs and they like to do it. And I'm there to support them and, and help them grow the business. But at the end of the day, I kind of step back and let those let, let the guys that fo focus on that space do what they do. And the business strategy and vision for that is still very focused where you're basically taking warehouses and converting them to creative office. There's like not much deviation at all. You know, we, we are deviating now, right? So we, because we have such a, a, a good portfolio of those, we decided, all right, let's start to get a little bit more diversified. So now we are looking at, you know, we're even looking at some ground up multifamily deals. There's a lot of, uh, we're, not, we're not aggressively pursuing anything right now, just simply because of the market and interest rates. But we do see a ton of opportunity in the next 12 to 24 months. So we're sitting on the sidelines saying, man, in 12 months, it, it's going to be very interesting what's happening in LA, not just with pricing, but with there's been a lot of zoning changes and things like that. So we're in a really good position to be able to kind of jump on really great deals in the space. So right now, probably not the best time. So we're more focused on the, 
owner's representation on the build side. But we're excited. Like I said, 12 to 24 months, we're expecting the development side to, to get moving again. On the development side, what were some of the early mistakes that you made when you were buying those first $600,000 buildings? Taking a hard money loan would be one <laughs> on one of them. I never done it with hard money lenders or anything like that. And You're like, hey, this is easy. I met the guy in a parking yeah, lot exactly. and it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember going through the process and I'm like, do you want my my children's birth certificates? I'm not understanding like why you're asking for all this information. And yeah, so that that was a, an interesting experience to go through and, and just kind of understanding, oh, you get on the wrong side of this. You're you're in a bad position. So luckily that never happened for us. But it was one of those things where I was moving so quickly. After I did it, I was kind of sitting there like, that was probably a horrible move. And we quickly refinanced out of it and it wasn't an issue. But I look back being like, it was close. You know, it, it could have gone south in, in one way or another. So yeah, that was that was one of the, the big learning curves. You know, finance, uh, that's one of those things where most of the stuff that we've done, we haven't had to go out and bring on investors or anything like that. All very straightforward. So getting into that space and learning more about that, there's a big learning curve for us to, to understand how that whole world worked. And again, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll dip my toe in it, learn enough to be dangerous, but I'll always default to finding the people that specialize in that stuff and bring them on and really lean on them to, to handle that, that side of the business. How did you figure out the, you know, the leasing side? Obviously, you could build it. But how did you know what these things could rent for? How did you underwrite it in those early days? Or did you not even really look at it? That oh, no, it was, it? I mean, you could have done it on a, a single piece of paper with crayon. It was, <laughs> that, that was my underwriting process because I was coming at, you know, as a builder and I looked at it, I'm, honestly, this simple. I was like, I could buy that building for X. I'm going to put this much money into it. My loan is X. I'm going to lease it for this. That's my income. That seems like a good deal. And that was the model. Right. And it worked I, out well, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny working, you know, we work we brought over some pretty savvy people in the space. And I remember the first kind of underwriting program or perform I got. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know, it was 50 pages and I'm just going through it. Like they're like, Well, let me see yours on that last warehouse. And I'm like, I don't I don't it was in my head. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, we had a very simplistic model early on and, and again at the point now where now we have a team analysts that prepare the right packages and the programs overall. But again, I'll let the right people focus in that space and, and uh, kind of excel. I'd love for you to talk about at what point the side business with you and your partner, maybe even more of like a personal investment that you're using kind of company cash with, right? At what point is that like, do you realize that this is like a real business? And then Talk about like the decision process to kind of put dollars behind that to actually make it bigger than what the two of your bandwidth could have accomplished on your own. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, it took maybe four to five years, I think, of kind of doing it on the side and using just our own money on the, on the company side to, to develop. But we, you know, we woke up one day and we have these five or six properties. They're all leased. They're all thrown off cash. And I have one of my office admins dealing with all of them on the side. And I'm looking at the amount of money we're making on these properties. And I'm like, oh, we've made a huge mistake. What are we doing <laughs> on the build side? So that was the moment when we're like, we need to 
spend more time on the development side than on the build side. And it was that simple to just understanding that aha moment of look how much money is coming in the door from these properties with this limited amount of work and oversight. And again, we're in a very unique position because we also had to kind of step back and say, well, let's also remember any issues that would come up on any of our properties. Well, we own a general contracting firm, so we'd fix it in five minutes, right? So that, that's a little bit different where if you just were a real estate developer, it probably wouldn't be as successful. But that, that was the, the kicker that said, all right, let's start putting some weight behind this. Let's, and that's when we actually started stately, formalized it, cleaned everything up, our books and our properties and everything were just a mess. So we actually brought somebody in, cleaned up all the LLCs, set up all the proper bank accounts, and really kind of uh, put some time and effort put between us and setting up that, that company properly. What did you need to do at the build company to kind of set it up from a leadership or a process standpoint so you could do that, so you could set up the owner's rep business? So that was probably about the same time that we really started rounding out our leadership team on the the build side. So once we had set that up, I was more heavily involved on the build side. And once we made that realization, I had a discussion with Evan, who's our president. And I said, I want to spend more time on the real estate side. So you're going to step up, you're going to take on a, a larger leadership role on the build side and really take this company and run with it. And that was kind of the discussion of, of how we tweak things overall. So it allowed me to step back from the build side, start focusing more on the real estate development and try and build up our portfolio more on that side. And at that point, we had some other key executives. So it wasn't too big of a lift for Evan where he was completely left all alone. He had some other key players uh, that he could kind of lean on at that point. What were some of the bumps or challenges when you kind of went to Evan? You're like, hey, you're going to take this over. I'm going to step back or I'm going to more diversify. Like when you step back, looking back over that first year, what were the things that you kind of had to lean in on and say, hey, you know, you forgot about this. You got to check in on this more. Yeah, I, I would say where we probably didn't spend enough time is carving out the new key accountabilities for each person, right? It was kind of like, it was that discussion of I'm going to step away, but then stepping away and being like, oh, wait, we really never delved into who's picking up the slack specifically in all these roles. And then we did immediately start to see things fall through the cracks, right? And then it was one of those things where, oh, I thought you were doing that. And it was like, well, no, remember, I'm stepping away. And he's like, but you're not stepping away completely. So it was a little bit of that. And then we kind of had to sit down and and get more focused. Um, And we did spend a ton of time on, I mean, we have a whole org chart now with key accountabilities and breakdowns. And that's, again, Going back to US, that's a big part of their model is everyone has these five to six key accountabilities where at the end of the day, if you say, what do you do and what are you responsible for? It's these six things. So if there's anything in those six categories, it should fall on my shoulders and I need to make sure that I'm taking care of that. And again, it's a simplistic way of looking at things. So that helped us kind of go back through and say, all right, let's kind of reset, understand who's doing what. And just over communicate, right? That's the big thing is over communicate so everyone understands and have your meetings. Keep going to, again, I'll keep going back to US. They have something called the same page meeting for owners. So this is not the executive team. This is if you're in a scenario where you have a partner or you have two partners, you're supposed to have what's called the same page meeting, which is where you sit down on a monthly basis. And it's just a meeting to say, like, hey, are we all good? Like, is everyone okay? Because, you know, you you run enough businesses to know, like, things simmer, right? 
this guy's not working as much as I am and, and things like that. So it allows you that forum to have those open conversations to be like, are we all good? And, and a very simple agenda to run through. You know, do you need to clear the air on anything? Do we need to have any bigger discussions? Is the vision and what we're all doing on a day to day basis still sync up with what we all want as owners, not as the executive team running a business, as owners of this business? You know, and what you'll find in those scenarios is people may be like, you know, I got three kids now. I'm not that into it. I want to step away more. And it's like, okay, that's good that you brought that up as opposed to just slowly not working as much and not showing up to the office as much because that's what you want, but not talking about it and telling us about it. Now that we know about it, let's talk about it and find a way to make that happen. And what does that look like? So I think it's it just creates a good framework for better communication. So on the development side, are you finding that the workspaces today need to be designed or built with a certain finish or in a certain way that's just going to blow this thing off? That's just going to be amazing? Or is it pretty light touch? Like where where does it where is it landing right now? For the style, those who want to just copy the play, copy the playbook. Yeah, like the, you're talking about, like the style of uh, offices and things like that. Style, like, are you fitting these things out so they look like a Google office, or are they kind of white vanilla box? Like, how far do you take it on these warehouse to office conversions? So we've had the most success with the full fitouts. What we found through our experience is when we would white box it it would take three times as long to find a tenant. When you would build these high-end, I mean, turnkey meaning like, can you get the furniture in the space? Those would lease up very, very quickly because they're, the models that we have are small enough to where you're usually looking for a single tenant. And somebody walks into a space like that that is after they've walked through a bunch of empty offices where they're like, okay, got to hire an architect, I got to design this, you know, I got to do all these things, to walking into a space where they're like, I could bring the whole team over here next week and we could be operational within a week. That is what people want, right? In terms of design, you know, we we have a pretty good design model now that I would I would say is you know, I don't want to say it's high design but also very neutral, right? It, it works for a lot of people. And then you can kind of mix it up with your FF&E and art and things like that at the end of the day. But yeah, the high-end model turnkey always leases up much faster because you know we take it for granted when you're in the space when you're in real estate hospitality you you have this vision for what something could be because that's what you do every day if you're a tech person or, or you're running a chiropractor business you don't have vision for what office you just see an empty space you're like i don't i don't know what this is so they those all those people need to walk into a space and just see it be like this works and then they're going to move on it so yeah, if you can do it, uh, it makes a lot more sense. We work with a great, one of our key clients out here who kind of has taken that model and put it on steroids is red car development. And they do kind of the highest, highest end model, really looking for the Google tenants or the Apple tenants, just absolutely beautiful offices. And they lease them up because people walk in and they're like, I have to have this, you know? Uh, so it works well. They do it on a much larger scale. So I ask all the guests on the podcast the same traditional closing question, and that is, what is your favorite hotel? Oh, gosh. <laughs> favorite hotel? And I feel like I have to say the Roosevelt Hotel because we keep building it over and over and over with, with good You rest. can pick two. It doesn't have to be one you build. It could be anything. Yeah. I mean, gosh, you know, the, for me, the hospitality is all about where you are and what you're experiencing at the time. 
So I, I don't know if it would be the greatest hotel, but it's where I've had the greatest experiences, right? So one of them is we love going to, well, there's two of them. It's either the, the St. Regis or the Montage in Deer Valley. And again, it's because I go with my kids and, and my family and it's just, I love it. You know, so again, I don't, from a hospitality, that's, that's a question for you. I feel like you're the hospitality guy, but I love the experience that I have there. You know, it's horrible for spoiling the kids, but it, it's a great, it's a great experience overall. And then, gosh, outside of that, I've been to some of the boutique hotels, you know, like I'm, I'm after this, I'm actually going down to the proper hotel in, in downtown LA. You know, it's a gorgeous building, amazing rooftop, a beautiful design. It's just a great property overall. It's unfortunate the location of it, but <laughs> the property is unbelievable. You know, so the property you is amazing, actually. Yeah. Great. I think GM there, Stefan Lacroix, I think is his name. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, it, there's like some specialty suites in there that are really cool with pools and like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you, you know, the, the, uh, I'm sure the proper team, Brian and, and, and Fabian and all those guys, but yeah, we stayed at their property in Austin and it's a, it's a good brand. You know, I like it. They've got it dialed in. Kelly knows how to design it. And if you can figure out how to build it and someone else can figure out how to pay for it, it's a great combination. Oh yeah. We have, uh, I have some fun stories of, of working with Kelly and, uh, and her design style. Unbelievable. That true creatives, you know, it, that's what you have to be to come up with that, mo that end result. People give true creatives a hard time, but the reality is they're the ones that push the contractor to actually help them create what they want, as opposed to just saying, oh, I'll you know, concede, we'll just do it the way you originally yeah. said. Oh, yeah. I've gotten a lot of napkin sketches and things. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? That's what I want. It's, it's on a napkin. So, but yeah, they, they, they know what they're doing. You end up with that product and you can't complain. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. This is amazing. Yeah, it was fun. Looking forward to, to seeing you in person soon. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwerzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Wurzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.